and you may be seated. I'm not sure what favor in the office Zach owes Pam, but the other day in the office he said, oh, I need somebody to play. And Pam said, oh, I don't know if I know those songs. And so I heard him in here this morning. He was given whatever tips. You did great, Pam. You did. Uh, it, it never, Scott, it never ceases to amaze Jessica and I. You give Pam 10 minutes and she can pretty much figure out anything. And that's annoying, isn't it, Melanie? That is so annoying that mom can just figure stuff out in 10 minutes. So anyway, good singing tonight. Take your Bibles and turn with you to Romans. I'm on. I wasn't sure if I was on or not. Then uh, that one out of the way. Romans chapter number 5. I got the questions out a little late today, but... Some of you have already said, I got the question. So let's go through a couple of the questions that were asked on the church app today as it pertains to the message tonight, or the chapter, I should say. May not, sometimes the questions don't directly connect to what I'm going to be preaching on. Uh, the first question that I asked on the uh, app to get us ready tonight was, what are three things that we have in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, because we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. What were some, some of you may look at that and say, well, there, well there's only three. Well, there's, there might be, there could, could be. I think there's three, but uh, what did you come up with? Justification. Okay, justification. Peace. All right, so in the Bible, in the verse there, it says we have peace. So now you've picked up on what the secret was. What do we have? We have peace. What's the second thing we have? Access by faith, all right, and then someone, some of you said grace, that's great, that's, that's true. We have access into this grace, so we could say it this way, we have access by our faith into the grace that he proffers, like we just sang about in the song. All right, what is the third thing? This one's a little bit harder in verses 1 and 2 to find. Hope, all right, this is good, you guys sound like we're at a bingo. We're yelling out numbers and you're yelling back at me, this is great, all right. We have rejoicing in hope is what I have. It's what I wrote down uh, as I was putting the questions out or preparing the questions. So good. Well done. That, I think those are excellent and correct answers from what I heard. The second question that I put out there is, what do you think Paul means to glory in tribulation in verse number three? What does it mean to glory or what do you think it means to glory in tribulation? Yes, sweet, another problem. Is that what he means? Counts it all joy like James? Understanding of why? What did you say, Stephen? Yeah, it builds patience, right? But what does it actually mean to glory in it? That's right. To suffer as Christ suffered. When I glory in tribulation, I recognize I'm going through the tribulation just like Jesus went through the tribulation. Just like he went through the trial, just like he went through the testing, just like he endured, I endured. So the glory in the tribulation is that it makes me more like Christ. It makes me the most like Christ. Uh, I'm not suggesting 
The high times, the good times, the fair days of your life are bad days. But it's the troublesome times when difficulty is set upon you, sometimes by our own doing and it needs to go, that problem. And sometimes and many times in our life, it's just that tribulation comes upon us unasked for. It's when we walk and live like Christ, glory in the tribulation, we actually bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. All right, good. Number three, the question I put, Paul uses the phrase, much more. This is just a simple fact-finding mission here. How many times did you find the phrase, much more, in Romans chapter 5? Four and five, I hear. Well, let's look at it. I've got to get my glasses out for this one. We have a debate. Four or five, you say, well, you're supposed to know. That's why I asked you the question. I'm not good at reading all these. I thought I would get a consistent answer here. All right. How many of you count up the much more? I'll give you a little bit of a hint. It starts in verse 9. That, that much I am aware of. Much more I see it written there. If we look into the Bible, sometimes I ask these questions just to make you read it. Uh, I used to be a teacher, and so uh, I know the secrets and the tricks of teachers to make you read it, because you can't read through this, and uh, you can't guess. Uh, I guess you could do a word search if you wanted to. I think I had five. I think I had five when, when, uh, when I went through it. Um, I could be convinced that I'm wrong. We're going to read through it here in just a minute, a good bit of it. I'm going to cover all of the verses tonight, so uh, we'll, we'll see if we're right or we're wrong. Question number four. Stephanie Jeffries prepared me before church. She came ready with the answer to this one. This is a grammarian's question. This is a grammatical question. If you, how many of you got above a C in English grammar through high school and college? Raise your hand. All right. How many of us at least once or twice got a D in those classes? Raise your hand. See, I had to raise it twice because I usually got a C or a higher, but I did get one D when I was in college and I had to take it again. Um, what is the point of a parenthetical statement, you English nerds out there. What is it? It adds flow to the sentence? Okay, that's one. What is a, a, another thought? Context. Tabitha. It's, it's often, and often it's an opinion, or a, especially in Bible writing, that's very good, meaning it's inspired, but it's there... Uh, here's what I've always come to know, especially in Bible writing, what a parenthesis is. It's not the main point, but it sure is a good point. And so when you read the Bible and you read a parenthesis, the writer of the parenthetical statement is enhancing the thought. That's their effective tool or their use within the English language. I'm going to tell you something. And, and by the way, here's why I'm telling you that something. Or here's an additional thought that enhances that main thing I'm telling you. And by the way, this passage, Romans 5, has one of the most important parenthetical statements in the Bible. And, and it actually teaches us great truth, even though it's an additional truth to the main topic that we're giving here. It enhances it. All right, the final question is, what does grace reigning in your life look like from verse 21? And I have no doubt there's many different answers. You don't need to answer that one out loud. The reason I ask that is because that's where we'll end the message tonight. And with that, we're not ending it right now. Some of you are already packing up. I mean, at the end, we'll end in that thought uh, so that you understand that's the goal of salvation, that grace is now reigning in your life, that grace is the dominant motivator in your life, that it's the grace of God 
uh, that causes you to do this or to do that. Well, let's read a couple verses this evening, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching of the Word of God. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 11. The Bible says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, or at the exact right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Father, help us tonight as we come to the Word of God, and as we study yet again in this subject area of salvation. We are glad for the justification that you give to us, that is granted to us, that is bestowed upon us through the work of Jesus Christ. We are glad first that you are justified in redeeming us and that we are justified in that redemption. Help us, Lord, tonight to know and to see the truth, specifically as all of these things have application to us. What we are to draw from it, the message that this salvation brings to us. Help us this evening to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace, faith, change. I started these three messages from chapters 3, 4, and 5, saying that those are the words that really will hold together each of the chapters. That is the order of operation in your salvation. Grace has to be manifest. Faith has to be exercised. And the result is change comes. That's what we find in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans. Justification is by God's grace through our faith with the intent of changing everything about us from dead to alive. Having introduced justification as the key component of salvation and having explained imputation's role in justification in chapter 4, we now come to the implication, or we might say implications, of justification. The word implicate simply means to convey indirectly one's intentions. In other words, what does God intend for our lives to be like because we've been justified? And you say, well, that comes in sanctification. Oh, no. It starts the moment you get saved. The moment your soul is made new, that regeneration happens. All things, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And chapter 5 is not dealing with our sanctification. Chapter 6 is. 
In chapter 5, what he says is that there is a wholesale change that comes to your life because you ask Jesus Christ to save you. We find three implications from Paul about this justification that we have in Jesus Christ. The first implication I put in your notes there is our perspective changes. Everything we see about the world changes the moment we ask Jesus to save us. I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to someone who is trusted in Jesus Christ and they will say, not because I'm sitting there going, do you feel different? But they will say, Pastor, there's something different. Is it magical? No, it's majestic, though. It's grand and it's glorious because your eyes that were blind can now see. And so what happens in the first nine, or excuse me, first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 is Paul begins addressing that the first thing that's got to change is the way you see everything, the way that you approach life. Everything about your perspective is wholesale changing, and it's important. Perspective is how you see the world, and that is the first thing that changes when you get saved. It's that you see everything in a new light. A divine light. That perspective change comes, letter A, through a proper understanding. A proper understanding. These verses, 1 through 8, are some of the most beloved in all of the Bible. They're some of the most foundational in all of the Bible. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. That is good News. That's the gospel, right? He started with the subject and then he dealt with the problem of sin. And now he's telling us about salvation. And he's saying in the closing thought of that moment, in that instant, in that time of salvation, he's saying everything about you is going to change and it's going to change because you now have a proper understanding of how God designed you to think. Not wants you to think, it's how he's designed us to think. We have peace. And so I noted underneath there, there's two things that we have. There's that which we have, and there's that which Christ gives, or what we have and what He gave, we might say. In the first five verses of this proper understanding, the perspective changing, we have peace, we have access, and we have, I call it, rejoicing. Now, we're rejoicing in the confident hope, the assurance of our salvation. But what we actually have is peace. No more war with God. That is really good news. We're no longer His adversaries. We're now His ambassadors. We're now those who are at peace with Him. We're now those who have, by the way, been conquered by Him. That's the great truth of salvation. You have to surrender you. You die and become alive in Christ. This peace, the status of no longer being an adversary with God, brings to us the access to all of who God is, all of His goodness, all of His glory, all of His grandeur. That produces then within us a confident rejoicing in God's very presence, in His very glory, that He is glorious. He goes on to say in verses 3, 4, and 5, there are a few more things we have. Now, I didn't give it away, but if you read it, you might have thought, well, there's some more things that we have, Kyle. Everything that we get is not just found in 1 and 2. You're right. 
we find there's a few more things that we have, but it's easier to divide it. There's the good things that we get, and then there's the growing things that we get. The growing things that we get are troubles. You say, well, I don't know. Before I was saved, I had a lot of troubles. You didn't have the kind of troubles like you have after you get saved. Once you get saved, now you're fighting a real foe. Before, Satan was your king. He was the ruler. He's the God of this world, the Bible says. He's the prince of the power of the air. And when you're in his domain, he's not going to come and stir your waters and trouble your life. But once you become a child of the king of kings and lord of lords, everything becomes difficult. And so when someone comes to me and say, Pastor, I got saved. I expect everything to go hunky-dory, A-OK. I always smile a little bit and say, well, let me know how that works. Tell me how that works out for you. And as their pastor, I try to give a little context, a little perspective. I usually will take people to these passages. And not only so, right, rejoicing, access by faith into his grace and peace with God. And not only that is so, Paul says, but we glory in tribulations. The Roman Christians would know this. They're the ones that are reading this. Remember, when, I, when we started this whole study of Romans, we can't just uh, excuse out of our mind who the direct audience was. It was Romans who themselves would be many of the martyrs. Much of martyrdom came from the earliest church that was in Rome. They were easy targets. They were sitting ducks. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. And so he's writing to them and he's saying to them, Hey, look, you're going to have tribulations. We glory in tribulations. That's what we Christians do. We Christ followers, Christ-like ones. Knowing, well, why do we glory in it? Knowing that tribulation worketh, or in an ongoing way, works up our endurance. The word patience here means to bear up under a load. It worketh patience. Patience, endurance, every time a trial comes, we're glorying in God. Another trouble comes, we're glorying in God. Another trouble comes, we go back to that peace, go back to that access in, uh, to His grace. We go back to that, that uh, rejoicing in the confidence of our salvation. And we come back to this idea of, I did it before, through God's strength and God's help, I can do it again. It gives us experience, and that's what he says. Experience brings to us that assured confidence. The word hope, especially here in Romans, but usually in the Bible, does not mean a wing and a prayer hope. I'm crossing my fingers and my toes and my eyes to hope this comes true. I hope the cats win another game. It's not like that. And that's where we get our context, right? Man, I hope he makes this field goal for your football team. That's not this hope. This hope is, I'm sure this is going to happen. Well, how do you get to a point of knowing for sure that tribulations are good for you? And the answer is because you've gone through them successfully before. That is a wholesale change of perspective with proper understanding. No one looks at tribulations and says, yay. No one does. But the believer in Christ looks at tribulations and says, I'm going to bear up under this problem, learning as I go to trust in the Lord, confident that God is always going to work good in me. He's going to talk more about that when we get to the end of sanctification in chapter number 8. A lot more about that. But he introduces it that this is the change that comes to our mind the moment we get saved. And believers that aren't taught that by their church, by their family, by their friends, 
Believers that aren't taught that you can make it through a trial are being sold a bill of goods and their Christian faith will not stand the trials of life. Troubles are not fun. Troubles, trials, tribulations, though, are coming. And you can make it through because many before us have made it through and many after us, if the Lord tarries, will also make it through. The, that proper understanding provided by the Holy Spirit, is where we come to truly know God's everlasting love for us. He says in verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad. It's multiplied. The idea of shedding here literally means taking a bucket, pouring it out, and letting it just see how far it goes, how wide it is cast. The idea is the Spirit of God brings the love of God into our life and just multiplies it as we trust in Him. In verses 6, 7, and 8, we find not what we have that gives us a proper understanding to have the right perspectives in life or the change of perspective. It's what Christ gave. Verse number 6 says, For when we were yet without strength or ability, ability to do what? Save yourselves. He's dealt with that in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3 in the earliest parts. For when we were yet without strength... In due time, at the right, appointed, proper, and appropriate time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, who's in that group? You know, all those pagans that don't come to our church. No, all of us were in that group. Everyone is ungodly before, before God, and he's going to deal with that in just a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. You wouldn't die, or you'd barely consider dying for a righteous man. I'm always amazed at when a police officer or a firefighter will put their own person in harm's way for another human being. And sometimes they'll even do it for scumbags. And so the Bible always knows that there are still those that will go that ultimate measure. I'm always amazed at our military that will stand in harm's way, whether it's a justified reason or not. We can argue about that until the cows come home. But those that are going and answering the orders are doing what they're asked to do. And they are willing to make that full measure sacrifice. And so verse 7 is saying, this is the reality. By the way, the Romans would be reading this. And those that were in the legion who were out fighting for the empire, they could have even read this and said, it's not easy to die for an emperor. I'm not even sure he's a good man. But God, in verse 8, commendeth, demonstrates, and shows his love toward us in that while we were yet enemies of his sinners, ungodly, Christ chose to die for you. We see three things in this that Christ gave. First, we see ourselves helpless at the beginning of verse 6. We were without strength. We had no ability of our own. Not only do we see ourselves helpless in verses 6 and 7, we see Christ the hero. The story's about him, not about you. Not about me. Christ is the hero of the Bible. And he ought to be the hero of your life. In verse number 8, we see God's very heart. Does God love us? If he loves me, why would he let all this bad stuff happen to me? Oh, he loves you, and he demonstrated that love by dying for you. You don't just see the hero Jesus Christ, but you see the heart of God in verse number 8. A proper understanding of both what we have and what Christ gave. 
changes our perspective. But Paul pushes the issue from theory to practice in verses 9, 10, and 11 through the idea of a perspective change through proper use of this new salvation. In verse 9, he says, much more than. Much more than compared to what? (laughs) Just thinking about it. Because in verses 1 through 8, there's a lot of rejoicing, there's a lot of internal struggle, there's a lot of things. But then in verse 9, he starts talking about the actual living that comes from the life of Jesus Christ. Not just a a commemoration of his death, but a movement into the life of Jesus Christ. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, here's the second much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The word saved in verse number 10 means to be delivered. What delivers our heart and our heads or to our hearts and our heads, the truth of salvation? The answer is doing what Christ did in his life, in his living. In other words, if I get saved and I don't ever change anything about me and I just say to God, oh, I'm so happy you saved me, God. It's so wonderful I'm going to heaven. I'm going to go right back to this very wicked way of living. If there's no process of living my life as Jesus lived his life or as he commended himself in this life, then there really hasn't been any perspective change at all. It's just a word or a thought. It's not action. And that's why the life of Christ is the focus then. If we're saved, and by the way, when we get to chapter 6, 7, 8, we're going to talk about sanctification. It's all the focus in sanctification. But even at the moment of salvation, man, I'm so glad Jesus died for us. By the way, our Catholic family and friends, they really focus a lot on the death of Jesus, don't they? Do you know what they don't spend a lot of time talking about? Resurrection living. Because religion just wants you to come back and sit in a stall next to a man with a cloth around his neck and tell him what you did wrong that week so he can absolve you of your sins and you can pay some more apparent indulgences to him or to the church. Christian living is not about coming back and telling your pastor how bad you are Sunday after Sunday. And buddy, I just did it again. I can't believe it, Kyle. I wish you'd pray for me. How about you just live for Jesus? That's a real perspective change. That's a difference. It's through proper use that we see the perspective in action. We're saved by His life when we engage in His righteous righteous actions. Excuse me. Then we begin to have a clarity that the faith that we had in His grace was in fact real. If you never change anything about your life, was the faith real? By the way, James has a lot to say about that in James chapter 1 and 2. Paul states that we joy in the reality of our reconciliation and our restoration. That is the word atonement at the end of verse 11. We joy in Jesus because it was through Jesus that we were restored. Any person that calls themselves a Christian and defames or dishonors Jesus isn't really a Christian at all. If if they are, in fact, a Christian, they're living in wanton sinfulness And I can promise you, judgment is just around the corner. Paul's whole point is that we should be in the mode of being much 
more engaged in the godly things in life because of the change that came at the moment of salvation. If your perspective on sin has never changed, then it means you've never been changed into a new creation created in Christ Jesus. The first implication of justification is that our perspective changes. The second implication, beginning in verse number 12 down through verse number 19, is that our position changes. It's not just how we think, but it's actually where we are. You say, wait a second. I remember when I got saved, and when I finished praying, I was in the exact same spot. Well, we're not talking about where you physically are standing. I'm saying where you spiritually are. What he begins to address in verse number 12, and by the way, I've told you when you read the Bible, always look carefully at the transitional words. Therefore is a transitional word in verse 1. In verse number 12, wherefore. Every time I teach my boys when we're reading the Bible in the Psalms in the morning or in anything, if you see a wherefore, see what it's there for. If you see a therefore, certainly see what it's there for. And these are the words that move us or transition. There's going to be one more that comes at the end, and it's the word moreover. Moreover is a transitional word. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here comes our great parentheses. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed. There's our word from chapter 4. When there is no law, in other words, it can't be reckoned. It can't be accounted for. It doesn't mean that it's not present. You just can't name what that sin is. If I don't know that if I shoot Edward, that's called murder, I will still shoot Edward and I will still be wrong, but I'm not called a murderer. That's all he's saying here. In other words, it can't be imputed. It can't be reckoned. I have no intention of shooting Edward, by the way. He says amen. Verse 14, nevertheless. Just because we can't reckon it, nevertheless, death reigned. It was still the the king of this domain. From Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or in the same fashion and manner of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Now, I'm going to be careful what I say here and how I say it here, but what he's addressing is this. It doesn't matter how many times you sin, you can't lose this justification. Hallelujah. And hold on, because you've got to be careful with that one. Verse 17, we're still in the parentheses. I cannot break out of this parenthetical bubble. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Let's do some explanation then of these passages of Scripture. Paul does not just address the change of how we look at life. God actually changes the 
present position of our life in justification. We go from condemned to redeemed, from dead to alive. So we must begin with mankind's present condition. Letter A, in Adam, all of us are dead. That is Paul's emphatic statement. You say, well, he's already, he's already addressed that back in chapter 3 and chapter 2. That's right. But what a good writer does is he will recall to your mind the salient, the, the key, the essential points by saying, hey, remember, we're all dead. And here what he does is he assigns it to the first murderer, the one that killed us, Adam, his choice. Paul establishes our position as we are born into this world, dead in our trespasses and sins. That position was made for everyone by Adam's choice to obey. That position in verse number 12 is confirmed, however, by each one of us in our own sinfulness. That's what he says in verse 12. You're all sinners because Adam sinned, but you're all sinners because you and I all sin. That's what he's addressing in verse number 12. To explain our original position, Paul makes a parenthetical statement. Within the parentheses, the first two verses, 13 and 14, address our dead state. They enhance the ver- they, 13 and 14 enhance verse number 12. Paul's point is we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Well, if I just didn't sin, I wouldn't be a sinner. Yeah, well... If rain wasn't wet, I wouldn't get wet when it rains, right? In other words, you're a sinner and sinners sin. It does not matter the exact likeness of the sinful act to Adam's. The nature of sin is the same. It, sin, misses the mark and separates us from life and places us into death. Just like Adam's sin did, even if it wasn't the same sin. Well, I never ate a forbidden fruit. You're still a sinner, even though you didn't do the exact same thing that Adam did. The implication of salvation is that by grace through faith, God is justified in changing our position from dead to alive through Jesus Christ, through the life that he lived obediently. That's why verse 15 starts with the word, but, another transitional word. In Adam, we're all dead, but in Christ... We all may be, let her be, delivered. That's the positional shift. From being condemned to being redeemed. From being dead to being alive. In Christ, we have been redeemed. What a truth. But not as the offense, so also is this free gift, he says. Verse 15 could easily read this way. As a result of one man's sin, death by natural consequence became the common state for man. It was only by the gracious, beneficial, generous nature of God, the free giving of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, that the love of God overflowed for the benefit of all of us. Now, you might be saying, I like the way Paul wrote it better. Good, because it was a lot shorter than mine. You could say it this way about verse 15. Our account was bankrupted by Adam. He cleaned us out. No good will, no good standing before Almighty God. But the grace of God in Christ restores the fullness of the bounty and blessings of life to us. That's great. That is good news, my friend. 
And if we were to take verse 16, we could read verse 16 in this fashion. God's gift releases us from blame. And not as it was by one that sinned, we could keep reading, so is the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift, it's from many sins, many offenses, many wrongs to justification. He goes on to say, J.B. Phillips says this in his commentary, not John Phillips, the guy I normally quote, a different Phillips, a lot of the good ones that are out there, my mom formerly being a Phillips. He says, J.B. Phillips, nor is the effect of God's gift the same as the effect that one of that one man's sin. For in the one case, one man's sin brought its inevitable judgment, and as the result, condemnation. But in the other, in Jesus, Countless men's sins are met with the free gift of grace, and the result is standing justified before God. Sin's awful guilt is gone, and that's a good thing. The final statement within the parentheses is verse 17. Paul there makes the point to say this, If one man's offense meant that men should be slaves to death all their lives, it is a far greater thing that through another man, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, men, by accepting Him and the acceptance of His more sufficient grace, should live all their lives like kings. That's really good news. You went from being morally bankrupt and dead to living like a king. That's pretty good news. And that's the positional shift. That's what's happened for us. We come then back out of the parentheses in verses 18 and 19, back to the basic implications of being justified. He says, wherefore, or We're told our position in Adam, therefore, in the first part, verse 12, verse number 18 tells us, therefore, it tells us our true position now in Christ. In Christ, our position in Him, we receive an abundance of grace, we receive an abundance of His gift, we receive an abundance of His righteousness. Stated differently, we could say His righteousness is abundantly gifted to us. And we reign. The word reign here means we have the dominion. We are in control once again. Boy, that's going to come into real clarity in chapters 6 and 7. You have a choice. Why? Because you're allowed to reign now, whereas before you were a slave to sin. Implication number one, our perspective changes. Implication number two that Paul addresses here, our position changes. And implication number three, and I must hustle, our possibilities change. What is now possible to you because you're alive? I'm going to be careful here because many of us have lost loved ones, and I do not mean to be callous. But when one dies, they lose all autonomy. They lose all independence. And so when we were dead, what were our possibilities? None. Dead things don't do things. 
And what Paul's going to tell us in verses 21 and 20 and 21 and getting us ready for sanctification is, hey, listen, the grace that saves you or justifies you by the faith that you place in it, that vehicle that transports you there, it's going to change you. It's going to change your perspective. It's going to change your position. But more than anything, it's going to change your possibilities. Before you got saved, you had no possibility of pleasing God. Now you do. Now you have His grace and you have the abundance of that grace. The first thing that I would say is uh, it's, uh, the possibilities all come from His grace in verses 20 and 21. Letter A, grace causes us to abound. To abound. Moreover, he says in verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound. Period. Certainly an emphatic statement, a declarative statement. But where sin abounded, because the law was there, grace did much more abound. Whew. Hallelujah. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Every time the law or preaching, and yes, even the Spirit of God's convicting of you, reminds you that, are a, that you're a sinner, take that as an opportunity to let the grace of God abound in your life. In other words, when you sit in preaching and you hear a preacher preach the Bible and the Bible convicts you, what he's saying here is, yes, it's going to tell you every single time you're wrong or what you've done wrong, or how far short you've come. But instead of sitting there wallowing in your self-pity, look back to the grace of God and say, man, I'm so glad that I got saved by God's grace and not by His law. That's what it means that grace much more abounds. The forgiveness, the foresight, even, yes, your personal spiritual fortitude that come from knowing Christ as your Savior is the abounding of that grace over and again. Romans 8 and verse 1, we're going to get to there. It's the last chapter on sanctification. It's the winner's chapter. The next three that we'll look at is the warrior, the war, and winning. That's what sanctification is all about in 6, 7, and 8. We find in Romans 8 and verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's grace abounding. That means you've understood what change has come into your life when you get saved. God gave the law to prove the guilt of sinners, but He also gave His grace to provide the liberty for our soul from that guilt. The more clearly you see your sin problem, the more wonderful and amazing God's grace really becomes. That's the tonic, we might say, that keeps us from sinning after our salvation. We recognize just how much it cost God to change our position and to create these possibilities for us. We recognize the high price of God's gift. We recognize the devastating cost of His grace towards us. Finally this evening, let her be, grace becomes then authoritative. It's the thing that motivates you. It's the thing that drives you. It's the thing that you are known for. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign or control you through righteousness unto eternal life 
by Jesus Christ our Lord. Not the law, not the shame, not the guilt, not even death. All those things are gone. Now grace reigns through righteousness. Grace reigns and controls your right actions. So in closing tonight, we are justified by grace through faith to change. Grace introduces us to justification. It wasn't our idea. It was His. Faith imputes justification along with Christ's righteousness to us. Change, what we've studied tonight, is what God implicates to us or conveys without outright telling us, you must do it. He says or implicates, you ought to want to do this. This is why it's so important. This change becomes the baseline of our living as we enter the next three chapters of Romans. Begin to look at this concept called sanctification. Oh, that is a deep theological term that is easily understood as we kind of dissect it over the next couple Wednesday nights. The gospel is the subject. The problem that all of us has is sin. God's solution is salvation through justification, which leads us to live a different life. And that's what Paul's going to address. It is one of the most impactful books of the whole Bible if you'll just study Romans. Father, help us, I pray, as we close tonight.